You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. We are currently going through a sermon series, going through the Minor Prophets. And uh, in the original Hebrew Bible, the Minor Prophets, it was actually one book. It was one book. And uh, now, in the English Bible, it's been split up into 12 different books. But we're just going through them one by one. And today, we are talking about Amos. And so, just to give you some context, uh, Amos, he was a prophet who lived about 800 B.C., about 800 years before Jesus. And uh, he was a prophet to the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the past, Pastor Dan, he talked about how there's a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. So Amos, he was part of the northern kingdom. And one of the things I love about Amos is he viewed himself as just a regular guy. He viewed himself as just a regular guy. In fact, there's this verse I love in Amos 7, 14 to 15. And it goes, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, Amaziah is a king, he says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And uh, and I love this because it wasn't like Amos was a preacher to begin with. It wasn't like Amos' dad was a preacher. Amos was just a regular dude. He was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. And that's about as regular as you can get. And by the way, a a sycamore fig, I had to look this up, is uh, it produced a fruit at the time that was commonly referred to as the poor man's fig. And so that's what he, he dressed them, meaning he, he, he had to do things to these fruits to make them ripe on time and things like that. So he would just do that. He would herd, and he would dress these sycamore figs. He was just doing normal, regular, everyday stuff. That was his day-to-day. And then God came along and called him to be a prophet. And that's a worthwhile lesson for us today because I feel like sometimes we have this mentality of, oh, God can't use me because I'm just a regular guy or gal. Um, you know, we have regular lives, we have regular jobs, we, we think, this is just who I am, and God might be able to use that guy over there, because he prays more than I do, and, you know, he attends all these church meetings more than I do, and he volunteers over here more than I do, so God might be able to use them, but he can't use me, because I'm just a regular person. Uh, but God changes our plans. You know, I never, uh, when I was growing up, I don't think it was my intention to become a pastor, in fact, I went to school to study civil and environmental engineering. So that was my, I, I have a, a Bachelor of Science in civil and environmental engineering. And, uh, but God took me from what I thought was going to be my career, and he led me to become a pastor. And I don't know God's plan for your life, but I think the lesson from just these two verses from Amos is that we should never assume that just because we're doing what we are doing right now, um, you know, we're going to be doing that for the rest of our lives. We should never assume that God won't call you to do something different than what you are doing right now. If God can call a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs to be a prophet, and if God can call someone intending to be a civil engineer to be a pastor, then God can call you to serve in some capacity too. And I'm not just talking about vocational ministry. I'm talking about a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, I'm saying stuff like, don't assume that God can't use you to share the gospel with a friend. Or don't assume that God can't use you to become a mentor to someone, either in the church or outside of the church. Don't assume that God can't use you to maybe lead a community group. Or don't assume that God can't use you to go on a mission trip. You might think, I'm not special. I'm not, you know, I'm just an ordinary, ordinary guy. 
Well, the thing is, we are all ordinary guys, and it is the business of God to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Um, So you don't need any extraordinary qualifications or skills. You just need a willingness to follow God. And so that's Amos. That's like my intro to Amos, because I just love that passage from Amos. He's an ordinary guy with an extraordinary task. And what was his task? As a prophet, it was to communicate God's message to the people of Israel. The book of Amos is pretty long for a minor prophet, so we won't get into everything. But today I just want to highlight this one major theme that runs through the book of Amos. This one major theme that runs through the book of Amos, and that is that God desires for his people to live with justice and righteousness. God desires for his people to live with justice and righteousness. And uh, probably the most famous verse in the book of Amos is Amos 5, verse 24, and it says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so as we talk about justice and righteousness, we, might fi- we may find ourselves thinking, Oh, these sound like pretty extraordinary, grand tasks, and I'm just an ordinary person. How do I participate in something as large as God's vision for justice and righteousness. And so, as we talk about this stuff, we might think this is too lofty of a goal, too distant from how our lives are living right now. Uh, I just want to remind you, God uses ordinary people like us in our ordinary lives to do extraordinary work. So, let's dive in. But first, let's talk about justice and righteousness. Because I think, you know, in our culture, justice and righteousness, we've actually use those words to mean different things and what they actually mean in the Bible, you know, uh, when we talk about justice and righteousness. Actually, let's talk about justice first. In today's culture, when we think about the word justice, we cannot help but think of social justice. Social justice is a huge part of our culture today, and regardless of where you stand on the issues, it is interesting that today, many social and political issues are framed in the vocabulary, in the vernacular of justice. Many social and political issues are framed in the vernacular under the umbrella of justice. For example, when people talk about the economy, when they talk about fighting for a $15 minimum wage, or when they talk about closing tax loopholes for the rich, or whatever, they often frame those conversations under the umbrella of justice. Right? When, we, when people talk about black lives, when they talk about incarceration rates, when they talk about police brutality, they often frame those conversations under the umbrella of justice. And, and in fact, a common protest chant uh, is no justice, no peace. People say that often in today's culture. And even when people talk about issues that traditionally don't fall under the umbrella of justice, like the environment, for example, now there's a huge field, environmental justice, where people talk about clean public water, when they talk about city waste disposal, they frame those conversations now under the umbrella of justice. And so... The word justice today, it means a variety of different things, but one of the main uses is to talk about social and political issues. Um, On the other hand, there's the word righteousness, and it is interesting that although people use the word justice all the time in today's culture, the secular world has almost altogether dropped the word righteousness from their vocabulary. We almost never use the word righteousness anymore unless you're a surfer, you might say righteous when you go over a big wave, or unless you're a turtle in Finding Nemo in the Eastern Australian current, then you might say righteous, okay? But other than that, you really don't say righteous anymore in today's culture. And righteousness has almost become just a churchy word. And in the church, what it usually means is it refers to our internal condition, 
our, maybe our standing before God or our moral uprightness before God and uh, in, in certain church environments, especially if you've been in certain cultures where people, they love talking about the book of Romans. These people, they use righteousness all the time, okay? They talk about how, you know, righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed into us, okay? So, but outside of the church, it's interesting because righteousness almost has negative connotations. When people say, oh, this person is righteous, in the churchy sense, they think, oh, this person is holy moly, this person is ignorant, this, this person is Bible thumping, this person might be hypocritical. That's a lot of people outside of the church, that's what they think when they think of a righteous person. And so it's interesting, right? So we have almost this dichotomy. You have the word justice, which has been embraced by social progressives. And on the other hand, we have the word righteousness, which has been embraced by Christian Bible-thumping do-gooders, okay? And so they seem like polar opposites, but I want to suggest that in the Bible, justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. Justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. And in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the two words, justice and righteousness, they appear side by side 44 times. In 44 different verses, you have the words justice and righteousness, and they're used almost in a parallel sense. And, uh, and, and another thing that's really fascinating, the English language is a little bit different, but if you, look at, if you look at how the New Testament uses the word that we translate as righteousness, if you look at other translations, they often translate that word as justice. So in the Latin, I'm not going to pronounce these, but if you look at the Latin, if you look at the Spanish, if you look at the French, if you look at the root word that they use for our word for righteousness in the New Testament, it's always justice. And so it's interesting because there was one word in the original Greek, and the Spanish and French translators, they translated that into their their form of justice, and we translated that into righteousness. And so, all of that is to say, the word righteousness and the word justice, they used to mean something that was very similar to each other, and now in our English language, they've evolved into something that's a little bit different. So, what does it mean? What does righteousness and, what do righteousness and justice actually mean? So, Originally, biblically, uh, righteousness is more than just a private moral standing before God. Righteousness is this idea of living in right relationships with everyone. So righteousness involves right relationships with everyone, including God and with other people. And so righteous living uh, involves maintaining harmony and unity with God and involves maintaining harmony and unity with other people, with all members of society. And it is a state of purity and uh, both individual purity and social purity, uh, whereas there's, the, there's, a, um, there's a wholeness of self and there's a wholeness of society. So that is the idea of righteousness. However, the world is not righteous. The world is very unrighteous. And so what is the means or what is the process by which the world becomes righteous? That means is justice. Okay, so the righteousness of God, you can think of it this way, the righteousness of God is achieved by the justice of God. So the justice of God is the process by which things become righteous. The justice of God is the process of enforcing the righteousness of God. Or alternatively, you can say the justice of God is the process of correcting unrighteousness that is in the world. So justice is the fight for a social system Um, that ensures equality, that protects the poor and the oppressed, so that there is righteousness, so that there is peace, harmony, and unity. And so that's the vision of the Bible, that God is righteous, okay, and he wants a world that is righteous. And so 
Because he wants a world that is righteous and because the world is not righteous, God enforces justice, and justice is a process by which the world becomes whole and peaceful and unified and righteous again. And I want to emphasize this is especially important because in today's world, especially if you follow politics, the justice, quote-unquote, justice camp is often pitted against the, quote-unquote, righteous camp. Righteousness camp. And, and those in the justice camp are often seen as socially or progressively, I mean, socially or politically progressive. And those, uh, they're often advocating for change, for renewal, for reconciliation. Those are the people in the, quote-unquote, justice camp. And those in the, quote-unquote, righteous camp, they're often seen as politically or socially conservative. Uh, they're often advocating for purity, for stability, for morality, things like that. And, and But biblically... Both camps, let's just take politics aside for a little bit. Both camps need each other because the concepts depend on each other. How do they depend on each other? Because God is a God of justice and God is a God of righteousness. God is both, in a sense, progressive and he is, in a sense, conservative. How is he progressive? Because he is pushing the world toward a specific goal. He has a specific goal in mind. He is pushing history toward a specific goal so that the world is progressing toward this goal. At the same time, God is conservative because his goal never changes. God's character, God's values never changes. He's always drawing people to a set system of morality and purity. And so when you have justice but no righteousness, you actually don't have justice at all. It's just meaningless movement. You're just pushing people towards whatever arbitrary goal there is. However, if you have righteousness but no justice, you don't have righteousness at all. Because you're setting a standard that no one can meet. And all you have is selfish isolation. And so both justice and righteousness need each other. And so I just wanted to establish that real quick before we dive into Amos. Because I think that's really important for understanding how Amos talks about the justice and righteousness of God. So check out what Amos says in chapter 5, verse 7, and in chapter 6, verse 12. In 5, 7, Amos says, O you, this is actually God talking through Amos, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And then in the next verse he says, Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And so what Amos is saying is that God has a standard for justice and righteousness, and he's saying that the people have twisted it, have perverted it, have corrupted it into something else so that it is unrecognizable. And uh, 6.12 is my, might be a little bit confusing. He asks a few rhetorical questions, and um, he's a herdsman, and so he might know very obviously to an- the answer to these questions, but I didn't, okay? So do horses run on rocks? I didn't know. I had to look this up, but long story short, the answer is no, they don't run on rocks, okay? And uh, do, pe- do people plow on rocks with oxen? I also wasn't sure. I was a little bit more confident because I can't really imagine plowing on rocks, but but the answer is also no, okay? You don't plow on rocks with oxen. And the idea is, he's saying, there's horses and oxen, they have a specific function, a specific purpose, a specific design. And when you use horses and oxen for another design, you're abusing what they were meant to do. And so he, in the same way he's saying, justice and righteousness, they have a specific look, a specific design. Uh, they have a specific system, a way of doing things. And when we abuse them, it's as if we are you know, using horses to run on rocks. So God has a design for living, a way things are meant to be, and that is a life of justice and righteousness. And the rejection of this righteous, of, of this justice and this righteousness is like a horse 
running on rocks. And so throughout Amos, God is constantly condemning the people of Israel um, for altering, for abusing, for perverting, for twisting God's justice and righteousness. And it runs across Amos. There's just countless ways. God's saying, you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. But just reading through Amos, I encourage you to do it on your own. There's a lot in there. But I would say one of the central ways that people got this wrong was that they exploited the poor. If you look through Amos, you look at all these verses in the Bible, in the book of Amos, one of the primary themes that run through the book of Amos is that people are abusing and exploiting the poor. And that is one of the main ways they're perverting the justice and righteousness of God, by not caring for the poor. I'll just put up a few examples. Here's Amos 2, 6 through 7. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So there is these poor, the needy, and they are trampling on them. They're turning them aside. Here's Amos 5, 11 through 12. It's the same phrase. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their, their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And so these are people who are selling the poor for profit. They're laying heavy taxes on the poor uh, to build nice houses and vineyards for themselves. They refuse to help the needy who can't afford help. But instead they choose to help the wealthy who can offer bribes. And so, in other words, they exploit the poor for monetary gain. And uh, one of the most powerful passages, I think, in the Bible is Matthew 25. Jesus talks about a similar concept. This is a little bit long, uh, but bear with me. This is Matthew 25. Jesus is talking, and he's saying, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then you'll sit on his glorious throne. He's talking about himself at the end of the age. Before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people from one another, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God so identifies with the least of these that an assault on the least of these is an assault on God himself. 
God so identifies with the least of these that an assault on the least of these is an assault on God himself. An assault on the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized is an assault on God himself. And so when God sees the battered mother, when God sees the homeless addict, when God sees the neglected orphan, when he sees injustice in the world, God is personally assaulted. And sometimes when we think about these issues of injustice, it's easy to point fingers. I think that's just the trendy thing to do is when you see problems, the first thing you do is to identify the source of the problem who is never yourself. And, um, but I want to say before we start pointing at everybody but ourselves, I want to read a few more verses because as we will soon see, God isn't just talking about random He's not just talking to random people in the book of Amos. Most of the book of Amos is written to the nation of Israel. In other words, most of the book of Amos is written to God's people, to you and to me. And so God is talking about how his own people are exploiting the poor. And so I'm, I'm going to read a few more passages. First off, there's Amos 5, 21 to 24. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what is God saying? He's talking to religious people who are doing religious things. They're having religious feasts. They're having religious assemblies. They're having religious offerings. And they're making these sacrifices. They're having religious music. And he's saying, I hate them. I despise them. I will not look upon them. Why? Here's another passage. It's pretty similar. This is uh, Amos 8, 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. And what what are you saying? He's talking to a group of people. They're going through the religious motions of following the new, the new moon festival and the Sabbath day. So these are religious festivals, religious holidays. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to not work. You're supposed to rest on these days. And he's talking to these people, and they're very obedient and not working on these days. They're saying, it's a Sabbath day. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to go to the money market. I'm not going to deal with money. I'm going to just rest. But what, what is their mentality? He say, they're saying, as soon as this is over, I'm going to deal deceitfully. And I'm going to cheat the poor. And I'm going to sell people. And I'm going to, and I'm going to uh, buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And that's what they're going to do as soon as the Sabbath day, as soon as the new moon festival is over. And so what, he's, what is God saying to these people? He's saying, you guys who follow all these religious activities, who are adhering to all these religious laws, all of you guys, you're, you're, you're going to religious assemblies, you're having these religious feasts, you're making all these religious offerings, you're making religious music, you're keeping the Sabbath. And you're, he's saying, all of you guys, I hate what you are doing. I despise what you are doing. Because while you are going through all these religious activities, you are exploiting the poor. You are abusing the poor. And this is sobering, again, because God is not talking to heathens. He's not talking to people who don't recognize God. He's not talking to people who don't go to, don't, don't go to the temple or go to the church. He's talking to people who participate in religious activities. Talking to people who, who like you and me. In 1845, the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, 
he wrote something similar. And, and this is a little bit long, but I love this. And I, I couldn't edit. I edited some of it out because it was super long, but I couldn't edit the rest of it out. I'm just going to read this, okay? He's talking about the spiritual atmosphere of, this is, of his day. And this is pre-Civil War when slavery was so rampant, okay? He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as a climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalms and the solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies and souls of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal businesses, his business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Wow, so he's saying you have this church and you have, this, you have slavery, the institution of the church and the institution of slavery, and they're working side by side. And when we look back now, 2020 hindsight, it's very obvious that slavery was a moral sin, that the institution of slavery was a huge stain on the church. And it's so appalling now, when we think about it, that so many Christians turn a blind eye. And not only turn a blind eye, but profited from the institution of slavery. But this tendency to have this outward religiosity, to participate in religious activities, all the while condoning in sin, or condoning sin, or even participating in sin, this tendency to have this religious religiosity and to participate in sin, that was true of the Israelites in Amos' day. That was true of Americans in Frederick Douglass' day. And that is true today in our world. It just, it's harder to see because we're so blinded by our... I mean, we're so, blind, we're so blind, we don't notice these things. And sometimes, you know, we, we look at all the problems of this world and we try to find people to blame. Maybe we blame the school system. Maybe we blame big banks. Maybe we blame politicians or political parties. Maybe we blame the media. It's easy to blame other people. But here's the thing. God, in this passage, he's not talking to those people. God is talking to his people. God is talking to his people. And so when we look at those institutions that we often point fingers at, those institutions are part of a fallen, broken world. So we expect them to be fallen and broken. When we look at our government system, when we look at banks, when we look at the school system, when we look at all the media, when we look at all these things, it's expected that they have problems because they are part of the fallen, broken world. But the church is supposed to be God's intervention into the broken, fallen world is supposed to be the place where brokenness and fallenness is healed and reconciled and put together. And so God is talking to his people. 
That is why God is talking to the church, to you and me. And so what is not expected is the church of God to neglect the poor and needy. What is expected is that a broken and fallen world neglects the poor and needy. What is not expected is the church of God to neglect the poor and the needy. So I want to challenge you. Are you concerned today about the poor and the needy? Does it break your heart to learn about the poor and the needy? And many of us, we live in Baltimore, so we can just talk about Baltimore, just to be frank for a little bit, okay? In Baltimore, 32% of children are in poverty. In Baltimore, one out of every 10 people is a heroin addict. In Baltimore, since 1985, 12,000 people have died from AIDS. In Baltimore, at least 3,000 people are homeless on any given night, and at least 30,000 people are homeless at some point during the year. In Baltimore, in 2017, this year, so far, less than six months, there have been 160 homicides, and we are on track to have the most homicides per capita in city history. Do those facts break your heart? Do they give you concern? Or do you just say, that's just another news story, and I'm going to move on with my life? Amos 6, 4 through 6. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And woe to those in Baltimore who go to Orioles games, who go duck pin bowling, who eat crab cakes, who explore art museums, but are not grieved over the ruin of Baltimore. So what can we possibly do? There's all sorts of things we can do. I love this is book, uh, Generous Justice by Tim Keller, and I love the book. And in this book, he talks about three practical things the church can do. Well, he more, uh, actually, more correctly, he talks about three layers of helping vulnerable, vulnerable people. He talks about relief, development, social reform. Relief, development, social reform. So first is relief. Relief, he defines as direct aid to meet immediate physical, material, and economic needs. For example, if someone asks you for money on the street, it's saying, hey, can I buy you a meal? And you go with them to Giant, or you go with them to McDonald's, and you buy them a meal. That's relief. Or if someone's saying, hey, I need a place to stay for for tonight, and it means relief looks like, before that conversation, looking up online, where are some places people can stay in Baltimore? Where are some men's shelters? Where, Where are some women's shelters? And being educated so that When you meet someone and they don't have a place to stay, you have a place to refer them to. That looks like relief. Meeting economic, uh, physical, material needs that are immediate. Secondly, there's development. And development, Tim Keller defines as moving someone beyond dependency on relief into a condition of economic self-sufficiency so that they can sustain themselves, so that they're not dependent on relief. And this might involve things like education, job creation, job search skills, financial counseling. So, for example, this might look like Choosing, I want to volunteer once a week or once every two weeks at this tutoring center or this mentoring center for underprivileged kids. Because at these centers, what people do is they become better educated so that after they finish school, they can be better empowered to get a job so that they are more equipped to not depend on relief, right? Or this might look like, I want to be a coach 
once a month or once every two weeks or whatever for a local soccer team or whatever. This might look like just maybe you live on a certain block and you always see a guy at the end of the street at this block and he's always looks like he has nothing going on and, and, and he's not doing anything. And he looks a little bit rough around the edges and it might mean just developing an intentional friendship with them, getting to know them so that you can understand what are their needs and so that you can move beyond relief. And finally... Or it might be, maybe, maybe some of us, we live in places where we don't have people like that around. But I would say every time you come to church, Hamden is full of people who are in need. And so I would encourage you, every time you come to church, don't just walk in the building and get your coffee and walk out. Intentionally talk to some people who look like they might be in need. And you can just, you can just say hello, start off with hello. And then if you just start developing a relationship with them, ask their names and get to know their story, ask them questions, ask their, about their experiences, get to know them and see how can you be a friend. Because I would say one of the main reasons why some people are so stuck where they are is because they don't have the social capital to get where they need to be. They don't, they don't have the connections to get jobs. And so if you are connected, if you are employed or if you are Somehow, if you have the social capital, getting to know people and then connecting them to people, is, is, to other people, is a great way you can help as well. And so there are tons of ways to get involved in development. So there's relief, there's development, and social reform. And I don't want to get too political. But social reform is to, seek, is to change the conditions and social structures that aggravate or cause vulnerability in the first place. Social reform is to change the conditions and social structures that aggravate or cause vulnerability in the first place. And so this may mean, and obviously we have a very politically diverse room, and so you, you got to do what your conscience is true. You line, up, you line up your politics with the Bible, and you just do what you got to do. But maybe it means peacefully protesting certain policies or practices. Maybe it means emailing or calling your government representatives to express your opinions. And maybe it means participating in those boring town halls or neighborhood association meetings to get stuff done. And obviously, we can't do anything, everything. Uh, I think you look at relief, you look at development, you look at social reform, you look at how God has gifted you, you look at your experiences, you look at what God has placed you, and you try to find avenues where you can best serve to meet needs of the vulnerable, but the one thing we cannot do is to do nothing. The one thing we cannot do is to do nothing. We cannot just leave here today saying, well, that was pretty good. I should care more, and now I'm going to go back to my Orioles games and my, my art museums and my whatever. What is one thing right now that God is placing on your heart that you can do to actively participate in the pursuit of righteousness through justice? Or maybe you are already participating in some of these things, and maybe your job isn't to stretch yourself more, to do more things. Maybe your job is to talk to people here in this church and invite people to come along with you for the ride. Say, hey, I volunteer here regularly, or I work here regularly, or I, or I do this and I attend this. Why don't you come with me? We could do this together. So I encourage you to think about that for a while. There's a lot of different things we can do, but we cannot do nothing. Maybe some of you uh, are feeling a little bit guilty. You know, sometimes when I read stuff like the book of Amos, I feel guilty. You know, or sometimes I feel overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. I feel like I already feel stretched thin already. Or sometimes I feel embarrassed almost, you know, because I, I feel like I have so much. And what am I doing to help out? In fact, you know, my wife and I, we recently bought a house. And, you know, I'm thinking, 
with the money that we put into this house, we could have done so much. And so is it right that we bought this house? You know? And I feel embarrassed and a little bit guilty about that. It's a decision that, we, that I wrestle with. When there's so many people who are homeless, it is, is it right that we bought a house? That we put a down payment down for a house? And so if you are feeling guilty or overwhelmed or embarrassed, listen to this passage from Romans 3. Romans 3. And notice in particular the words righteousness and justified. Okay, which justified is similar to the word justified. You really use justification and justice along in the same sentences often, but they're actually very similar words. But anyways, just pay attention to Romans 3. But now the righteousness... Oh, this is Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So he's saying, God sent Jesus to die for us, okay, to pay for our sins. We were all fallen. We weren't righteous. We weren't. But now Jesus has, made, has justified us. And then it says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so what is he saying? The enforcement of righteousness, the justification of our sins and the world's sins, the, the, the justice of God was never our task. It was always the task of God. And the righteousness of God was made manifest not in us, but in Jesus. And so, here's the thing. None of us were righteous to begin with. We have all sinned. And because we've all sinned, it makes sense that we are guilty. We feel guilty or overwhelmed or embarrassed. It makes sense because we are fallen. And so when we look at this problem, all we can do is say, we are a part of this problem. How can I fix this problem when I'm part of this problem. So who can't fix this problem? God fixes the problem. Because God is righteous and God is just. And that is why this verse says God is just and the justifier. And, he, and that is both the individual sense where Christ died for our sins so that we have individual atonement and we have a relationship with God again. And that is true in the social sense, in the social justice sense, that God is the one who brings about social justice and not us. And God has already started the process of justice and righteousness. And what he has started, he will complete. Amos 5, 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice has already rolled down. Righteousness is already an ever-flowing stream. How? Through Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of the justice and righteousness of God. He is the source of living water, living streams, and he is today carrying out his work through us, the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are just and you are the justifier of our sins and of the sins of the world. We thank you that justice and righteousness are not up to us. So that though we struggle, though we may feel guilty, though we may fail, though we may fall short, we can rely on you. Because we know that what you started, you will complete. We thank you that you have already initiated the process of bringing about justice and righteousness through the person of Jesus. And we pray that you will continue to invite us.
to join that process so that we will also participate in the healing of the world. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the work at hand. I pray through your spirit you enable us to see just the need, the poverty, the brokenness all around us. I pray that you allow us to see the opportunities to fight for the poor, the opportunities to fight for the oppressed, the opportunities to fight for the broken. And we also thank you that Jesus, not only did he fight for the poor, but he became poor. And not only did he fight for the oppressed, but he became oppressed. And not only did he fight for the broken, but he became broken. And it is in Jesus and not ourselves that we have hope. So God, I pray when we think about this message of justice and righteousness, that we will not feel condemnation and futility, but that we would feel hope and motivation and freedom. Knowing that in Jesus there is a, rich, uh, there is a river of justice and a stream of righteousness. And we are just the mediator. We are just this irrigation system in which we deliver this river to the world so that the world is made righteous again. Thank you so much for Jesus. And in his name, amen.